Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today I'm super, super excited about our guest that we're going to have. I mean, he's done it multiple times, you know, before actually getting into it, you know, just a little plug here. So for you, for all of you that you didn't see this, I launched my latest book last week, Selling Your Startup, recommended by over 20 founders that have sold their companies for over 500 million and over a billion each. And basically it's the roadmap for getting your company acquired. And I think that people don't really think about the end goal and reverse back engineer the process to where you are today in order to really take it to that level. But uh, but anyways, you know, it's uh, all online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever you want. But anyhow, let's talk about today our guest. And he's amazing. I mean, he's done it, done the full cycle, build, fundraise, uh, scale, uh, getting his company acquired to his last one. What he's doing now is remarkable. Uh, it's a space that not a lot of people have really tackled, you know, that much. So I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, also raising equity, raising debt, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Austin Allison. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So so originally born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I mean, what, what, a, what a long way all the way to Napa where you are now, but, but tell us about your upbringings there in Cincinnati. How was life growing up? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Cincinnati. My dad was a carpenter, and I mentioned that because it really introduced me to real estate and, and caused me to fall in love with this industry where I've spent my career. Uh, but I grew up with a hammer in my hand by the time I was you know, three or four years old. And by the time I was 17, I uh, became a homeowner. I bought my first fixer-upper when I was 17. And my parents' name, of course, because I wasn't legally of age to, to be able to buy the home, but you know, my money and that I had saved for the down payment and all that good stuff. And I started selling real estate when I was 18. And that was really the start of what I would describe as, as my career in, in real estate entrepreneurship. And I sold for about five or six years while I was going to college. And I also went to undergrad for, for real estate development and, and architecture. And then, uh, Went on to law school after that, and in my first year of law school, started my first company, which was called Dotloop. So let's talk about this drive. I mean, where, where is this drive? Because, I mean, starting to, to, to sell homes, you know, at 18, you know, becoming a broker, as you were saying, I mean, it's not the norm. So, so what do you think created this incredible ambition and this drive that you have? 
That's a good question. For me, it just felt natural. Like I've always felt energy and ambition to do things and build things. And early in life, it it started out with little quote unquote businesses, such as the first business I can remember was a birdhouse company I created, where when I was, I can't remember the age, I was like eight or nine, maybe 10, but I was really young. And I remember my dad made a birdhouse for my my mother with some scrap wood from one of his job sites. And my mom really loved the birdhouse. And I just saw how the birdhouse kind of lit up her eyes. And then I was inspired to start building birdhouses. So I asked my dad if I could use his extra wood and if he could teach me how to build a birdhouse. So I started building birdhouses, recruited some friends from, from the, the, the street to walk with me and ride bikes up and down the street and sell these birdhouses to our neighbors. So like that was one example of many examples that I, I can share that happened in my early years where I was just always really found energy in building things and working with people and learning new skills. And so I think my best guess is that some of it's just kind of hardwired in, you know, to who you are. Um, but I would say the other thing is is the people that you're surrounded by. So in my case, like my dad was a carpenter, as I mentioned, and he was always as a as like a self-employed carpenter, you're always hustling. You know, he always had to find his next job. He always had to figure out how to pay the next bill. He had to figure out how to keep his workers on payroll. Like he was just always grinding and working on building the next thing. And I think that probably had a lot to do with with me as well in the sense that that's all I knew, right? I, I didn't know that there was any other way. So so in this case, I mean, you were really business driven. So so why law school? I mean, that's just like so out of left field, you know, based on where you were coming from and also where you are now. Yeah. So in in a, I would say there's a few things that have have sort of, um, you know, influenced and shaped my life in a really meaningful way. One is around following your passion. Like I've, I've always been a, a big believer. And then over time, as I've met mentors in my life, many of them have, have basically said, find a way to follow your passion in life and everything else will take care of itself. So I've sort of optimized my life around that, you know, following things that I'm passionate about. So, and, 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 and there've been times in my life where I, I go through phases where, you know, there was a period in my life where I was really into running marathons. And that was a, a passion that that consumed a lot of my time out, outside of family and work. Um, and I would say another thing that has really shaped my life is is the people that I'm surrounded by. And and this will get to the answer to your law school question. But one of the one of the people that that I was really influenced by early in my career was this this guy named Dan, who was running this company that I was working for, a real estate company that I was working for at the time called Duke Realty. And Dan was the leader of this, this Duke Realty office. And he was like 35 years old at the time. I was probably 20. And I remember how everybody around the office just really respected Dan. Nobody ever questioned how he got into this big, important role by the time he was 35. Everybody always said, wow, Dan is super smart. He went to law school. And that always stuck out to me that everybody sort of associated Dan's work ethic and his intelligence with law school. So I became curious about that. And I, I got to know Dan and I said, Dan, can you just tell me about law school? Like you, you're not practicing law. Why'd you go? And he said, Austin, think of it like academic boot camp. 
there's nothing you can do, in, in his opinion, there's nothing you can do from an education perspective to train yourself and your mind and, and develop the discipline and habits um, to be great at life and business and whatever it is that you want to pursue than law school. So I went to law school for, for academic boot camp, mainly because I was inspired by Dan and I wanted to make sure that I was investing in myself in my career to the fullest extent possible to set myself up for, for success. Um, so I never planned on practicing law, you know, even when I applied for law school, <laughs> I, I only went to just further develop my skills um, as a professional and as an individual. So then, so then let's talk about then Dotloop, because uh, while you were in law school, Dotloop, you know, your, your first company really came knocking. So, so how was that process of really incubating the, the, the idea of Dotloop and, and, and bringing it to life? Yeah, so it, it happened as almost like a, just a process of kind of evolution, or it, was, it started as a side hustle where I was selling real estate at the time to pay my way through college. And this was also true in law school. I was still selling real estate. And I found myself feeling frustrated by the inefficiencies of, associated with real estate transactions. Because at the time, like digital signatures and electronic documents hadn't really taken off. I mean, even popular services today like Dropbox or Google Drive, I mean, they were around, but they hadn't really been adopted in a meaningful way. So real estate transactions were primarily paper-based. And I wanted to solve that problem. So I started like tinkering on it, you know, on nights and weekends. And I eventually found a, a co-founder who had technical experience to help me build the software. And he and I just worked on it over a period of, you know, weeks and months. And eventually it got to the point where it felt like we had something. It felt like we had had a software that was really had the potential to solve a problem for, for the real estate industry and for consumers who were buying homes. And once we got to that point, um, we went out and we, again, on nights and weekends while I was working and going to law school, we tried to start selling the product to uh, real estate brokerages and, and to trade associations. And it got to a point where it was clear that if I was going to make this business work, if I was going to see this passion that I had through to reality, I had to go all in. I couldn't just be spending a couple of hours on nights and weekends working on this thing. So I went to my boss at the time at Duke Realty and basically, because I was very loyal to Duke Realty, they had been an amazing employer to me, had you know, invested heavily in me as a, as, a, as a co-op and young professional at the time. So I went to them and said, hey, I've been working on this side project. Um, I think it might have legs, but it needs a, a leader to go build this business. And my loyalties are to you, Duke Realty, but I'm asking for like a 30-day sabbatical off of work where I can go find a CEO to go run this business. That's what I said to my, my boss. And he said, Austin, would you mind showing me what you've built? So I walk around his desk and, and I show him the software. And at the end of it, he looks at me and he says, Austin, I, we appreciate how loyal you are to Duke. We really appreciate it. You've always got a job here if you ever want to come back, but you have to go pursue this dream. He said, I see how passionate you are. Like, like, nobody's going to be able to represent this company better than you are. You have to go pursue this dream. And by the way, could I be your first investor? And he became my first investor and is now, you know, one of my closest mentors and friends and, um, and has invested in, in all the companies that I've, I've been affiliated with. So, so that's wow. kind of how it came together. 
Wow, that's amazing that uh, you were able to have someone like that as a, as your first boss and then also mentor. So, so I guess um, what ended up being the business model of Dotloop, so that the people listening, you know, understand what you guys were doing there. Yeah, we're basically a productivity software for real estate agents and real estate brokerages, meaning brokerages and agents buy the software so that they can be more efficient in the way that they do business and. Um, you know, it, so we make money as a, as a monthly fee. It's just a, a software as a service. Um, but it was an amazing company. I mean, we, we had a really meaningful mission at, at the right time in the marketplace and, and an amazing team. And that's really what made it. So we built the company over a period of six or seven years before we, we sold to Zillow. And by the time I left, something like 50% of all transactions in the country we're flowing through Dotloop. I mean, you know, tens and tens of almost a hundred billion dollars and in real estate per month uh, was was being touched by these these transactions that were being facilitated on Dotloop. So we got to wow. really big market share and became the leader, you know, in our in our space of residential real estate in the U.S. And uh, it wasn't without a lot of challenges, though. It, it definitely was not an overnight success. There were a lot of lows and a lot of highs along the way. Tell us about that moment, you know, because probably talking about the lows, you know, that moment where you had to let go most of the company and you had to max out on, on credit cards. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of companies have these moments. You don't always hear about those stories when you, when you see the big outcomes. Most of these companies appear from the outside to be overnight successes, but very few are. I would say that, you know, yeah, one of the lowest of lows that you're alluding to is there was a moment at Dotloop before we really had found strong product market fit where we ran out of money and we had had hired a lot of people, many who were my personal friends at, at this point. And we ran out of money. I depleted my, my credit cards and maxed out my, my savings, which was not much at the time. And it got to the point where we were literally out of money. So I had to sit in front of the company uh, on, the, on the day when we couldn't make payroll and let half the company go. And the other half of the company had to be comfortable not taking a salary until we figured out how to get some more money into the company. So that's a really bad day. I mean, when you when you mess with people's lives like that, um, and as CEO, it's your responsibility. I mean, ultimately we're all in it together, but like that's one one of the many jobs that the CEO has is is to make sure that the company is being responsible and is is, is financed. Um, uh, and and that felt bad. It felt really bad. I knew from that moment on I was never going to make that mistake again because it just didn't feel good. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I guess when you have you know half of the company leaving and then the other half of the company staying, how how did you really deal with or 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 minimize the impact on culture? Yeah, well, you know, culture is just so a, a good culture is so deeply rooted into the DNA of the company and the people of that company that a great culture really shines during, during the lowest of lows, right? It's not, it's not like culture is just, you know, five values that, that you, you know, put up on the wall and, and use as lip service. Like culture is, is really what defines, it's like the character of the company. So I think in, in our case, like we had built a really strong culture. We had we were all aligned around a really, we had a bunch of really smart people who were all passionate and aligned around the mission of the company, which was about helping people work better together. We were all totally bought in and had co-authored, you know, the values of the company and 
those things bond companies together and 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 moments of low. So I think it was just a function of having a good culture um, and allowing the good culture and and clear set of values and alignment around the mission to be able to really shine in that in that low point. And and obviously the outcome was fantastic because Silo ended up acquiring the company for a reported 120 million. Uh, but but here up until the transaction, I mean, you you guys had raised you know about 14 million, and and in essence, I mean, you did bootstrap a little bit of it, and then you ended up injecting the capital. So so what would you say prompted you to really raise money? Well. You know, it it takes money. It usually takes money to move fast and to create a, a category and build a national business. Like scale is just hard. It costs money to hire people, costs money to build software and and invest in in the scale and the security and and all the other stuff that comes with it. Um, so it just takes money if if you want to move fast. Now there's a way to go about it where it consumes less capital, which is to slow down the rate at which you grow. But there's certain certain types of businesses and Dot Loop was one of those businesses where you really need to get to a certain scale for the, the flywheel to start turning, you know? And, and in Dot Loop's case, the, the real uh, importance of scale was the fact that Dot Loop was in the center of the way that real estate agents work together. So like if you were selling a house and I was representing the buyer on a home, we would both use Dotloop software to get that deal done. So in order for the software to work, it had to be widely accepted by real estate agents on both sides of the transaction. And to, to introduce a product to an entire industry across an entire country, you know, in a short period of time takes money. So that's why we raised money, because it was the right thing to do in the context of filling on the mission. Um, in terms of kind of how we raised, we raised in, I would say, a, a, a somewhat non-traditional way in the sense that we raised a bunch of small checks uh, along the way. Like our first check was $130,000. And then we did a few more of those. And then we had raised 600,000. And then we did a few more of those. And before you know it, over, over a period of a couple of years, we had raised a few million. It wasn't actually until the business was like four years old that we did our Series A with, with, with a like traditional um, venture investor that was based in San Francisco called Trinity. And uh, at that point in time, Trinity came in with uh, seven, or no, it ended up being 9 million that Trinity invested in the company. But that was four years later when the company was at a you know, $4 million run rate and, and actually profitable, believe it or not, with customers in a lot of different markets. That's amazing. So then tell us about the process. CeeLo acquiring Dotloop. I mean, how amazing. So, so, so how did that happen? Well, the, the first thing that I should start with when, when you say how amazing is when I first started the process, I actually thought about uh, selling as a failure. Like my vision was always to build a company that would, we would take public, that would be sort of withstand and endure the test of time on its own as an independent business. And I viewed selling as like uh, a sign that you didn't make it, right? That you had to sell because you couldn't get there on your own. So it, it took me uh, a while to really adjust to the idea of selling. It wasn't something that I was excited about doing. But what I ultimately figured out, and now in hindsight, it's all very clear to me, but at, in the moment when you're like committed, you know, this, this company in many ways, it's like your sense of identity and you're so passionate about the mission that the thought of allowing it to go to somebody else is pretty hard. 
Um, but ultimately what I concluded is that we would be able to fulfill on the dot loop mission in a bigger and better way if we were part of Zillow because they had, you know, more resources, access to, you know, more real estate agents and listings and all sorts of bunch of really smart people. So like I, I just had to go through the calculus of determining that being part of Zillow would be better for the mission of the company. And what's better for the mission of the company is better for everybody, independent of what I think, right? So when I went through that exercise and, and finally became kind of open to selling to Zillow, um, the way that the process happened, tactically speaking, is it started with uh, just a relationship. So I actually met several of the Zillow leaders, including Spencer, who was the CEO and who's now my co-founder in Picasso. I met Spencer years before we ever sold to Zillow. We would, you know, I'd reach out to him. We'd meet up at conferences. I'd update him on the business. And I think that relationship that we, and I did that not just with Spencer, but with the other executives at Zillow, who still to this day, I respect, you know, to the highest degree as, as industry leaders. And I think building that relationship over time really helped both parties to, to see the potential alignment between these two companies. So that transitioned into a business development conversation and eventually that transition to a conversation about being part of Zillow. And, and then after that, you know, it, it happens pretty quickly. Yeah, no, of course. And so after the transaction, I mean, you were, you were for about four years there in Zillow, and then you decide to take a year off to travel a little bit. I mean, what, what did you do during that, day, that year off? Because eventually that year off, you know, was very productive. You know, you came up with the idea of Picasso. So, so what were you doing there? And then tell us about Picasso coming into the picture. Yeah. You bet. So I, I stayed on at, four, at Zillow for four years, really to make sure that, that the integration was a huge success for the employees, but also for, for Zillow and for Gottloop. And once that job was done, you know, it was time for me to turn the page to a new chapter. So I knew I wanted to start another company, but I thought that this might be, you know, one moment in my life, potentially the only moment in my life where I have the time and the money and the freedom to take a little bit of time off, right? Because I, with my next company, which we'll talk about here in a second, I wanted to create a company that was gonna be my lifetime company. The thing that I am most passionate about that I spend the rest of my life on, right? I, I didn't wanna do another company and then repeat the process. Like I, I wanna find the thing I'm most passionate about and work over the period of my life to fulfill on that mission. So this was sort of a window of opportunity for me to take some time off. So I did that. We went and my wife and I went and lived in Europe uh, and, and primarily in Italy uh, for three months. We learned to speak Italian during that period. Um, I pursued some hobbies that had always been on my bucket list, like, you know, some car racing and just things that, you know, are sort of like not very practical, but like high in the sky when you're a little kid, you dream of doing this kind of things. Um, but, but one of the big ways that I spent my time though was was thinking about what I wanted to do next. I wanted to be, given that I wanted to spend the rest of my life on this next business, I wanted to be very, very thoughtful about the the business that I was going to create. And what I what I what kept surfacing for me, you know, as I was going through this exercise, it it, it this this experience that I had about uh at the time, I guess it was like five or six years prior, now like eight years ago, um which was when my wife and I became second homeowners in Lake Tahoe. Prior, prior to this moment, my wife and I were like most families 
who had dreamed of owning a second home but couldn't afford one. Like we didn't grow up with extra money. We didn't cert we could have never thought about having a second home as a family. Um, because they're expensive and they're highly underutilized. I mean, most second homes are only used five weeks a year. But we were able to save enough money at the time in 2014 to put a down payment on a second home. We became second homeowners and it just fundamentally changed our lives. Like it unlocked, it turned the page to this new chapter, um, which you can kind of describe as like our second life, if you will, where it's not like we're on vacation when we go to our second home. We're just at, at this, this other life that we have in Lake Tahoe where we're part of the community. We have some of our best friends live in Lake Tahoe. We, we are super loyal and frequent the local restaurants whom owners we now know and are friends with. Like it, it became this really part of special part of our lives. And I realized how special it was, but also so out of reach it was. And I wanted to find a way to change that. I wanted to find a way to empower more families to realize their dream of second home ownership and do it in a like socially responsible way because empty second homes, which is the norm, is bad for everybody. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for local communities. It's bad for housing affordability. So I wanted to find a way to connect people to empty homes so that more people could, you know, live an enriched life. So then, so then tell us about, so obviously this, this, this took some time to incubate. At what point do you say, you know, this is very interesting. This is the, the type of company that I'm going to be able to dedicate the rest of my life to. So what were some of the immediate steps that you took? And then also, how did you bring Spencer, you know, on board? Yeah, so to answer the first question around when I knew, you know, what it, I just knew after, you know, when, when I was on this, this little sabbatical, you know, I just kept finding myself like waking up energized about this idea. Like in the house that we were staying at in Italy, I had these, you know, those like paper uh, big, the big post-it notes that you get and you post them on the wall and you can kind of use them as a whiteboard. I had the whole wall lined with these post-it notes. And it was like this, you know, analysis that I had been working on for months and months. And every morning I would wake up just energized about this idea. And that's when I knew that, that it was the one. It was just like, it was, it was, I cared so deeply about empowering people to realize their dreams and so deeply about solving this underutilization problem because we've got you know a housing crisis in the world that's largely fueled by lack of supply so I wanted to make better use of empty homes and I just knew it just in my gut I knew it was it was the one in terms of what happened next and how I engaged Spencer so Spencer was part of this process with me because he and I dating back many many years even before I joined Zillow we always really connected with one another and aligned in the way that we thought about life and company building. We were both very mission oriented. We're both very people first and passionate about servant leadership. Um, and he was at a point in his career where he's, you know, 10 years or so ahead of me and um, has, has achieved a great deal of success and has a lot of knowledge and experience that I can benefit from, right? With him as my mentor. And I have sort of a, the, a little more youth and, and hunger and appetite to go, you know, run through walls every morning um, for a living. Uh, and, and so I think we were just a good match from that perspective. We had the same values. But we were at the right stage in, in our mutual lives to be able to work on a company together in this way where he's chairman. So he's, he's, he's not, you know, active in the business uh, as an executive day to day, but he's a very active chairman and, and I'm CEO. So we, 
started working on ideas together pretty much right after we both left Zillow. And we both left, you know, independently for different reasons. But um, we started working on ideas. And this was my idea. And he had a similar idea that was related to underutilization, but it was in a slightly different industry. But the, the two things that we both connected on is the power of second home ownership because he grew up with second homes. So he got to experience just how meaningful they are to his family, but also underutilization. We were both super passionate about making better use of space. It's just a, it's bad for the world for space to be underutilized. And we wanted to go solve that problem. So we started working on it and uh, basically spent a lot of time long before we started the company we sort of spent that year thinking and planning for the business, doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of prospective customers, like thinking about who we were going to attract to our team. And by the time we were ready to actually start the business at the beginning of 2020, we had a lot of groundwork laid and, you know, we knew who we wanted to add to the founding team. We, we knew what markets we wanted to start in. We, we, we had done a lot of groundwork and that enabled us to really hit the ground running when we officially started the company. So then tell us about the business model. How, how do you guys make money with Picasso? How does it work? Yeah, it's, it's very simple. We basically provide a, a platform that empowers people to co-own homes together. So you can buy one eighth or one quarter of a second home and we manage all the details. Um, the way that we make money is twofold. We have a one-time fee that we call service fee that's baked into every share price. So if you buy a Picasso for $500,000, for example, about 10% of that Picasso goes to our company as a, as a service fee. The second way that we make money is we manage the home, kind of like we're basically a property manager. We're like a tech-enabled property manager, I guess, is a really simplistic way to put it. And we charge service fees for that management process on an ongoing basis as well. Got it. And, and obviously for this, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. I think it's like 1.7 billion between debt and, and equity. And on the equity side, about 90 million. So, so that's a lot of zeros, Austin. So, uh, so how has it been, you know, this process of raising money for Picasso? Because it's, it's not the traditional route of, of you raise equity money and then you deploy, you know, on operations. I mean, obviously you have all these different things that you also need to cover, which you're doing, you know, with raising the debt. So so tell us about this process and, and what is the difference between raising for equity or raising for debt? Yeah, so as a general rule, I'll say my experience, not independent of Picasso, which I'll get to, but setting Picasso aside, in general, my experience has been that fundraising is generally pretty difficult, um, particularly for first-time entrepreneurs. Like when we were raising for Dot Loop, it was you know, a total grind. Like we were always in fundraising mode and it was always a grind. Uh, the Picasso experience has been very different than that. And I think largely because we have a, we have a track record, you know, so like everybody at, on the executive team has been a public company executive. Spencer and I have, have created and exited, you know, a couple of companies. Um, and, and we've got a broader network now than we had before. So uh, the Picasso fundraising experience has been very smooth. Uh, we've basically been able to raise equity quickly, you know, every single time at at fair prices. And I think it's just largely because we have a really big opportunity, uh, a really high quality team, and we've been able to execute, you know, very quickly and, and deliver 
rapid growth and, and strong unit economics in a very short period of time. Um, in terms of the debt side, this is a newer world for me, the, the debt piece. Um, but it's, it's interesting. And it's also been pretty, uh, I won't say easy. I mean, it's real work. It, it requires a lot of conversations and a lot of you know, spreadsheets and presentations to investment committees and stuff like that. But there's this whole world out there of, of debt investors. And basically, they're, they're underwriting your business model. So you, you have to figure out, depending on who you're talking to and how they, they underwrite their, the credit that they're providing, you, you, you just have to work with them to, to get them comfortable with your model. So we started out, we now have a combination of facilities, like we've got a couple of different debt partners and you, you're sort of always constantly evaluating those facilities and, and upgrading them as the, as the company gets more mature and the track record becomes larger you're able to attract better debt at, at better terms and lower costs over time. So it's just kind of this constant process. So how, how big is Pacaso today for the people that are listening? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of numbers of employees or anything like that? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're growing super fast. So these numbers change radically from quarter to quarter. But you know, right now we're about 120 people. Uh, on the team, we started the year six or seven months ago uh, with uh, 30. So we've gone from 30 to 120 or so in seven months. Um, we're in over 20 destinations around the U.S. and we're actively working on expanding internationally, starting with Europe and then Mexico and the Caribbean will follow shortly thereafter. We've got several million, you know, users that that visit our website and tens of thousands of of buyers who who we're working with about buying Picasso, so it's growing super fast. Uh, but the days are very early. You know, this is this is a huge, huge market, and um, we're in the very early days of of what I hope will be a multi multi decade, you know, enduring business that we build. And and as we're thinking about, you know, the the, the business down the line. So imagine that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Picasso is fully realized. What does that world look like? The vision of Picasso will never be fully realized because we embrace what at the company we call an infinite mindset. So there's a, a book that I would recommend for everybody here uh, that was referred to me by one of our investors, Howard Schultz. The book is called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And yes. in, in The Infinite Game, they talk about having an infinite mindset, which basically means that you don't put a time horizon on, on your thinking. So like a normal company that thinks, well, I guess normal companies think short term, but good companies think long term. They think in terms of like, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now, or at least five to 10 years from now. We think indefinitely, meaning we want this business to, to last forever in a, in a kind of a theoretical sense. Like we, like certainly not in my lifetime, <laughs> we're not going to be done enriching people's lives and empowering more people to realize their second home ownership dream. There's always work to be done, to, to be done, right? <laughs> Population is growing, the world is evolving, and, and we will constantly pursue the mission, which is about as enriching as many lives as possible. So, you know, right now we're, we're doing that through luxury second home markets, but someday we, we hope to enter, you know, markets that are a bit less luxury, but still desirable for second home buyers. Like, I'm from a, a, a Cincinnati, Ohio, as we talked about, 
And around Cincinnati, there's a lot of lake towns that are very important to the people who live in Cincinnati that, you are, that you've probably never heard of, right? Because they're regionally relevant, but not nationally relevant. Someday we want Picasso to be available in those towns as well. You know, not just the Napa and Malibu and Miamis of the world, but the places that are relevant and accessible to, to all people around the, around the country and, and eventually around the world. So we have a lot of work to do. I don't think we'll ever be done, uh, but uh, that's, that's part of the fun, right? It's like we're, we're able to pursue something that we really believe in, make a really positive impact on people's lives and a really positive impact on the communities where our, where our homes exist, um, which is great. And, and it's sort of an infinite amount of work to be done. I, lo I love the infinite mindset. So, so let's say that we put you now into a time machine and we bring you back in time. You know, perhaps, you know, during that time that you were still in law school, you know, wondering, you know, about a world where you could, you know, build your own business and, uh, and, 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 and really put it out to, to, to the world to see. And you have the opportunity of having a chat with, with that younger self, with that younger Austin. Uh, in law school, and, and you're able to give that younger self one piece of business advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I couldn't narrow it down to one. I'd, ha I'd have to narrow it down to two, which is follow your passion. You know, there's this life is short, at, at least here on earth, um, and and it goes fast. So you might as well spend it on what you love. So that's definitely important. I wouldn't pursue anything, whether it's a company you're building or a job that you're taking, uh, unless you're passionate about it. And and following your passion leads to better work and better results, by the way. So there there is a, a benefit there um, beyond just, you know, fulfillment and getting the most out of life. Um, the second thing is surrounding yourself with the best possible people that you can because nobody succeeds alone. Nobody, at least that I'm aware of. Uh, I've never seen it happen. Uh, people succeed together. And the bigger the mission, uh, the bigger the opportunity, the more great people it takes. So you cannot possibly surround yourself with, with great people. And we were fortunate to do that at Dotloop, but because we were just getting started, you know, it happened over time. It's not like when you're a first-time entrepreneur, you can't attract you know, Spencer Raskoff to be your co-founder, for example. Um, so you, you have to work up to it. Um, and just like Spencer, like he had to work up to, to where he's at now. It's not like he, he started as the CEO of Zillow. He, he started as an analyst at Goldman. Um, so you have to work up to it, but you can always surround yourself with great people. And there's no better time to start that than now. Amazing. So for the people that are listening, Austin, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can reach me at austin at picasso.com, P-A-C-A-S-O.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, not super active, or Instagram, and my handles are G Austin Allison. So thank you all for listening, and yeah, de please definitely reach out. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show, Austin. Thank you. Take care. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.